Let's again turn to the Lord in prayer as we prepare to hear the word of God read and proclaimed. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, send us now your spirit to move within our hearts and minds with power that they may be open to receive the recreating power of your word. Through Jesus Christ, we ask these things. Amen. Our scripture reading this morning comes from the gospel according to Mark chapter 9, verses 14 through 29, as we continue our sermon series through selected miracles of Jesus. Hear the word of the Lord, it is written. And when they came to the disciples, that is Jesus with Peter, James, and John, they saw a great crowd around them in scribes arguing with them. And immediately all the crowd, when they saw him, Jesus, were greatly amazed and ran up to him and greeted him. And he asked them, what are you arguing about with them? And someone from the crowd answered him, teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about, foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, How long has this been happening to him? And he said, From childhood. And it has often cast him into fire and into water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, all things are possible for one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe, help my unbelief. And when Jesus saw that a crowd came running together, he rebuked the unclean spirit, saying to it, You mute and deaf spirit, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. And after crying out and convulsing him terribly, it came out, and the boy was like a corpse, so that most of them said, He is dead. But Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up, and he arose. And when he had entered the house, his disciples asked him privately, Why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, This kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. Now to him who loves us, who has freed us from our sins by his blood, to Jesus Christ be all glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. There is a striking juxtaposition that occurs here in Mark 9. Jesus had just come off the Mount of Transfiguration with Peter, James, and John, where Jesus' glory had been revealed. The curtain of heaven had been pulled back, and the three disciples were able to see Jesus in his true state, radiant and glowing. And Moses and Elijah, the ones who represented the law and the prophets, were there to give witness to Jesus, the fulfillment of the law, and the one of whom the prophets spoke. And a voice from heaven boomed down, this is my beloved son, listen to him. 
It was an affirmation of the divinity of Jesus. Affirmation that God himself had taken on human flesh and had come to dwell among his people. It was an altogether glorious moment, one in which the disciples wanted to remain in as long as possible. But Jesus knew that they couldn't stay there. So he and the three disciples came off of this mountain, and when they did, they found a crowd gathered. And in the midst of this crowd were the other nine disciples arguing with some scribes. And what was all the ruckus about? A man had come looking for Jesus, hoping to have his demon-possessed son healed of the torment that he had been suffering. He found Jesus' disciples who attempted to cast out the demon but were unsuccessful. If we're familiar with Mark's gospel, then we remember that the disciples had earlier been sent out by Jesus in chapter 6. And Jesus had given them the authority to go and to proclaim the gospel and to heal the sick and to cast out demons. And Mark tells us in verses 12 and 13 of chapter 6, So they went out and proclaimed that people should repent, and they cast out many demons and anointed with oil many who were sick and healed them. But here in Mark 9, they were impotent to cast out the demon. So we have moved off of the mountain of power and glory into the valley of weakness and sorrow. The fallenness of the world and the powers of evil have demonstrated their very real and formidable presence. And you can sense in this passage the frustration. It was a frustration of a father who desired healing for his son who had long and horribly been afflicted with this demon. And Mark, more than Matthew in Luke's Gospels, where this same healing account occurs, describes the miserable condition that the boy had lived in. The boy was not only robbed of his speech and hearing by the evil spirit, but he was also stricken with a condition much like epilepsy. Verse 18 tells us, And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams and grinds his teeth and becomes rigid. So the father had come looking for Jesus and his disciples, having heard that they could help, but the disciples were unable to provide any help. They were proven powerless to cast out the demon, and the father's hopes were crushed. And so we also see the frustration of the disciples. The disciples realized that the power which they had earlier possessed had been lost. But what's more, they were shown to be impotent with a crowd watching. It's one thing to fall on your face when you are alone. It is another thing altogether to do it in public. And this is what happened, utter failure that resulted in public humiliation. So it wasn't just that they had failed to heal the boy and disappointed the father. They had also embarrassed themselves with this very public display of weakness and inability. And this became a point at which the scribes who were there could attack them with hostile criticism. They were already skeptical of this man, Jesus, and his disciples were proving what they already thought about him. But the father and the disciples weren't the only ones frustrated in this particular passage, were they? Jesus was frustrated 
2. We find in verse 19 a rare glimpse of Jesus' displeasure with the human condition. Jesus exclaims here, O faithless generation, how long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Now, we might wonder who these rhetorical questions were directed at. Was it the Father who was just speaking to Jesus in the immediately preceding verses? Was it the disciples who had failed to cast out the demon? Was it the crowd, and maybe more specifically the scribes, who were verbally assaulting the disciples on account of their failure, and ultimately in their disbelief of Jesus as the Messiah? Notice Jesus' word choice here, though. O faithless generation. Any of these options hardly make up a generation. The scope, then, of his grief is much, much broader. What Jesus was lamenting here was the unbelief and faithlessness of the entire generation of those who he had ministered to in his earthly ministry. And before we write these comments off simply as a demonstration of Jesus's humanity, we should recognize that they sound an awful lot like several places in the Old Testament, like Numbers 14, 11. The context of Numbers 14 is that the Israelite spies had just come back from the land of Canaan and reported to Israel that there were strong men in fortified cities in the land that God had promised them, causing the people of Israel to grumble against Moses and Aaron, meaning that they were grumbling against God himself, crying that they had been delivered from Egypt only to be brought into this land to be slaughtered. In response to the grumbling, God asks Moses, how long will this people despise me? And how long will they not believe in me in spite of all the signs I have done among them? And this is exactly what Jesus was expressing here in Mark 9. Jesus wasn't just faced with battling the unbelief or the the boy's demon here he's also faced with battling the unbelief all around him not just from the scribes and the crowd not just from the father but even within his own disciples and it becomes clear as we move through the passage that the disciples were unable to cast out the demon because of unbelief lack of faith and Jesus's words then were words of deep pain and frustration over a people he had come to rescue but who were unwilling to take God at his word, who lived in rebellion against him and sought to escape dependence on him, who were unable to see anything beyond human possibilities. And Jesus had had enough of this unbelief. So he instructed that the boy be brought to him. He was going to provide a visible demonstration of his power in the liberating mercies of God and thus overturn the disciples' failure. Verse 20 states, And they brought the boy to him, and when the Spirit saw him, immediately it convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. Not surprisingly, the demon recognized who Jesus was and reacted violently in opposition. It erupted into this fit, causing the boy to seize up and fall to the ground. There is no going away peacefully by the forces that oppose God in this world. 
there is conflict, battle. The demon didn't stand a chance against the power of God, but that didn't mean it wouldn't ease, that it would easily give up without doing as much damage as possible first. And look at what Jesus asked the father in verse 21. How long has this been happening to him? The father replied, from childhood. It's a very revealing exchange between Jesus and his father. It not only invites the father to honestly, to come honestly and openly before Jesus with all of his years of pain caused by this demon tormenting his son. And it not only shows Jesus' deep concern for the boy and the extent of his pain and suffering, it also reveals the malevolent intention of this demon. The demon had rendered the boy helpless and sought to destroy him. It had often cast the boy into fire and into water, as the father explained to Jesus. This is the nature of evil, as we saw in the earlier exorcism from Mark 5. But I don't think that it is insignificant that the son had been plagued since childhood. The evil one desires nothing more than to harm little ones. As J.C. Ryle points out that this passage reveals to us how early in life we are liable to be injured by Satan. There is a deep, a lesson of deep importance here which we must not overlook, Ryle states. We must labor to do good to our children, even from their earliest years. If Satan begins so early to do them harm, we must not be behind him in diligence to lead them to God. The devil, we may be quite sure, loses no time in endeavoring to influence the minds of young people. He begins with them even of a child. Oral urges us then, let us work hard to counteract him. Dearly beloved, I think that we are seeing and have been seeing in our nation the devastating effects of evil influence in the hearts and minds of our young people. There is indeed a battle raging for the soul of this nation, but the front lines aren't being fought in a voting booth, nor are they being fought in the halls of power or the seats of justice. The front lines are being fought in the hearts and minds of young people across this nation. And for far too long, the church in America has failed to recognize evil's power and persuasiveness over our children. We have sent our children out unprepared, ill-equipped to handle the spiritual forces that would oppose them and seek to destroy them. We have unknowingly and unthinkingly turned them over to be influenced by those who would seek to persuade them into a worldview of perversion and unbelief through unmediated use of the internet and media through their formal education, through exposure to godless peers and adults in positions of leadership over them. And the number of children being born to professed believers who are later ascribing to a worldview not only indifferent to the Christian faith, but antagonistic to it is staggering. In effect, the church is populating this country, but our children are ending up in the hands of the world. And this passage should give us pause to how we are preparing and protecting our children from the assaults of the prince of this world. 
We are called to raise up children who love the Lord and seek to honor him with their lives, who when they reach maturity can be shot out as arrows into a dark world as light and salt. And Satan wants nothing more than to destroy these arrows and turn them against us. We must know our enemy and counteract him as J.C. Ryle urges. Dearly beloved, as those who have taken baptismal vows for children in this church, it is our responsibility to help ensure that parents have everything they need to disciple their children and to provide for them a Christian education. Young parents need the wisdom and guidance of those who have gone ahead of them in raising up disciples of Jesus Christ. They need encouragement from the community, and our children need all of us to be in prayer for them, to proclaim the gospel to them, to provide the witness of faithful lives that they might be guided by our example. But this question that Jesus asked in the father's subsequent response set up what the father was about to say. You see, the father had lived under tremendous weight. And now Jesus' disciples had failed to relieve the boy of his demon. The father then is understandably cautious at this point in asking for deliverance even by Jesus. So he said to Jesus, but if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Did you hear that? If you can do anything. In other words, the man is unsure if Jesus had the power to provide what he was requesting. The man essentially approached Jesus with the attitude that any attempt to help was better than nothing at this point. But there was tremendous doubt as to how helpful Jesus would actually prove to be. And this approach drew a sharp reaction from Jesus. If you can, all things are possible for one who believes. And here we have highlighted once again what is at the heart of this passage. It isn't a demon-possessed son. Jesus had already been shown to easily cast out demons. The demons did not reveal themselves to be any real rival to Jesus. At a word, they are dispelled. Evoking faith, though, was a much more complicated matter. More than all the demons Jesus faced in his ministry, the greater opposition and the more serious obstacle was disbelief. Whether it came from the Father, the crowds, the scribes, or even his own disciples. The problem here then was not divine unwillingness or inability, but human unbelief. What is impossible to humans is possible with God. So Jesus commanded of the Father faith because faith is the bridge between frail humanity and the all-sufficient power of God. In other words, it is our faith that effectively links us to the power of God. Dearly beloved, do you understand? Jesus is powerful to save. Every one of these miracles is pointing to his divinity. It is revealing him to be God, and as God, he has the power to heal and to cast out demons and to raise the dead. But all of these miracles are pointing to his greater work, the forgiveness of sins and the newness of life offered by his substitutionary sacrificial death on a cross and his resurrection from the dead. 
And this salvific work is sufficient for the salvation of the world. But you remain dead in your sin if you don't place your faith in him and come into relationship with him. If you don't trust in his sacrifice to save you, if you don't bind yourself to him in faith, then his saving power remains outside of you. All of the miracles are seeking to evoke faith, but this miracle is lifting up this principle in particular. If this man wanted to experience the power of Jesus to heal and save, if he wanted Jesus' divine authority to be effective in his life, then he must believe. And notice the man's reply. I believe. Help. Help my unbelief. It is a profound plea. The man becomes conscious of his unbelief, the littleness of his faith, and he didn't believe that he had the faith required for what he desired to receive from Jesus. He thought that what he had wasn't sufficient, that he didn't have adequate, an adequate amount of faith. But look at what his plea reveals. It reveals that he was willing to yield his insufficiency to the sufficiency of Jesus Christ. He was willing to risk everything on the little faith he had, so he cries out to Jesus for help. And it's here that the father finally professed, despite perhaps the evidence to the contrary, that he believed that Jesus was able. And the power of God opens to him. There's a great lesson here for us about our faith. This miracle reveals that it isn't about the quantity of our faith. We can have a faith as small as a mustard seed, as Jesus says in the other Gospels. It isn't about the bigness of our faith. It is about the bigness of the power of the one in whom we are joined by faith. So Jesus rebuked the Spirit. He delivered a decisive word. Verse 25, you come out of him and never enter him again. And the evil spirit did as Jesus commanded, although it did take one parting blow, leaving the boy like a corpse, as verse 26 says. And the father here must trust in the words of Jesus and not what he is seeing. It was an opportunity to be challenged to grow in faith. And sure enough, even though the onlookers believed the boy was dead, Jesus reached down and raised him up fully alive and finally freed from the demon at last. And it challenges us. It challenges us to never be content with the state of our faith. The reality is that our faith will always be mixed with unbelief. I said this last week in my sermon on Jesus' miracle of walking on water, but this passage is a reminder to us to battle, to battle against unbelief. Even as we are called to have faith just the size of a mustard seed, we are called not to settle for a little faith. Don't get comfortable with it or become complacent in it. For as Charles Spurgeon said, unbelief robs God of his glory in every way. Unbelief robs God of his glory in every way. Why? Because it doubts God's sovereignty. It doubts his power, his promises, the efficacy of the blood of Christ shed for us, the truth of the gospel. 
And don't be mistaken, our doubts do not remain in our hearts and minds, but eventually lead us to act in unbelieving ways, which is sin. When we allow doubt to remain, we are allowing unbelief to rule over belief, which leads to us serving a falsehood. And when we do this, we have exchanged the truth for a lie. So we're supposed to feel the frustration of our failures. We're meant to be irritated by our inabilities. They should be helping us, spurring us on to realize our insufficiencies in a way that drives us to the one who is all sufficient. And you are missing out in your relationship with Jesus if you aren't constantly seeking to dispatch your doubts, to eradicate your unbelief. Having more of the presence of Jesus means having more of his power and resting more and more in his sufficiency and goodness. And this passage gives us the answer to fighting unbelief. Look at how the passage ends, verses 28 and 29. And when, the, when he had entered the house that is Jesus, his disciples asked him privately, why could we not cast it out? And he said to them, this kind cannot be driven out by anything but prayer. As soon as the disciples got alone with Jesus, they wanted to know why they had failed, and Jesus responded that it was an issue of prayer. Now, the other Gospels record Jesus telling the disciples that it is on account of their lack of faith. And at first glance, we might think that there is some lack of consistency here in the Gospels. But think about the relationship between faith and prayer. Faith and prayer are both centered in, their, in our relationship with God. True faith, faith that can move mountains, is characterized by an openness toward God, a dependency on God. And the same is true of prayer. Therefore, as one biblical scholar put it, prayer is faith turned to God. Prayer is faith turned to God. Or as another scholar stated, prayer is simply faith breathing. Prayer is the focusing and directing of faith in specific requests to God. Prayer then is the medicine of unbelief. If you want to dispel disbelief, then turn to your God and Savior in prayer. It is from Christ and through Christ and in Christ that our faith rests, and prayer puts us into contact with him. It is a means by which our Weak faith can cling to a mighty God and be strengthened, built up. Prayer isn't merely defensive, though, keeping us from unbelief and protecting us from temptation. It is also offensive. The church is meant to invade and plunder Satan's strongholds, and it begins with prayer. The reason why the disciples weren't able to cast out the demon was because they weren't rooted in prayer first, which led to a lack of faith. They believed, however, that just because they had once had access to God's power, that they would always have access to his power. But that isn't how it works. Our faith in God must be maintained, every day reaffirmed and, and strengthened. And we do this through prayer. Otherwise, we stop turning to God and begin trusting in ourselves. And this is exactly what happened to the disciples. Therefore, they didn't have access to the power they needed to provide healing. So how does the church find the ability she needs to help the world? 
by believing God enough to say her prayers. And hopefully our inadequacies always drive us to pray more and more. This is God's gift to us. It's our way to fellowship with him and to receive power from him. So I hope that we allow Jesus' words to the disciples to challenge us this morning. And I hope that we would consider what kind of demons we are facing in this world and what is effective against them. And perhaps I'm unique in this regard, but I have been deeply saddened and distressed by the social and moral revolution that's been happening in this country over the past few years. And we have watched the church's seeming ineffectiveness at handling this changing tide. The, the culture around us has seemed to plummet right off a cliff, and there has been nothing that we have been able to do to stop or even slow the process. And here's the reality. We are no longer in a culture where people are merely asleep in their faith, where they were raised in the faith and have wandered away from the faith, where they know the faith but just have failed to practice it, and in which they simply need to be awakened from their slumber. That isn't to say that there aren't some out there like that, but by and large, people are just outright opposed to the Christian faith. They haven't so much wandered from the church and the gospel as they have rejected them altogether. Where once there was an openness to Christian truth, now there is a denial of Christian truth, even by some professed believers. And where once Christian morals were commonly held in the culture, now there is a total rejection of objective morality altogether. This means that we live in a culture that doesn't understand itself as moral or immoral as much it, as it has defined itself as amoral. Do what you see is good in your own eyes. So the culture around us is hardened in their unbelief. And I've seen in the church a desire to be an agent of healing for the world around us. But dearly beloved, this kind of demon isn't coming out with what has become the normal means of church ministry. There isn't a spiffy slogan, a flashy website, an entertaining worship service, or appealing programming that will deliver this nation from darkness. Human inventions to grab attention will not work. This kind is much deeper and more desperate. You see, when someone is dead in their sin, they don't even have a category in which to place sin because we are post-Christian. So how do you go about talking to them about being in need of salvation? It won't be by any human strength, creativity, or wisdom that this darkness is dispelled. A few moralisms in a yoga class at a church isn't going to cut it. But let me tell you what I believe will work. Prayer. And the proclamation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, not one or the other, but both, working in tandem. This evil only comes out through prayer because it is only in total dependence on God that the church has any hope of creating change in our culture at this point. We are totally inadequate otherwise. We are doomed to frustration and failure no matter how many people we can pack into our sanctuaries. We must pray earnestly actively, persistently, believingly. And then we must preach. 
trusting that God's word has the power to save, praying for God's word to go forth in power to open blind eyes and unstop deaf ears and to awaken dead hearts. Dearly beloved, we need to pray for our own sake, but the world needs our prayers as well. It's time. It's time, dearly beloved, that we start storming the gates of hell, fully armed with the weapons God has given us and in the power of his spirit. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let us pray together. Heavenly Father, we believe. We believe, but help. Help our unbelief, Lord. Help us to dispel our doubts. Help us to cast out unbelief that we may have access to the power in which we stand in Jesus Christ. Help us to trust in your sufficiency, to turn away from our insufficiency, to find in you our all in all. And Lord, we pray that you would raise up your church Raise up your church to meet the challenge of this dark world. Raise up your church to be light and salt as you have created us to be. For we pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. In response to the gospel of Jesus Christ, let us now stand and affirm what we believe using the Heidelberg Catechism, question number one. Christian, what is your only comfort in life and in death? My only 